Good morning. It sure is good to see so many familiar faces. Some I haven't seen in a minute because of your guests with us or because you're here with mom today, uh, grandma. But we're glad to have you. It's good to be with you. I'll be preaching the gospel this morning in our brief time together from the, the apocalypse, the revelation, the last book of the Bible. We'll be turning to chapter 11. In just a moment, we'll be reading it in its entirety. If you'd like to find Revelation 11 now in a print Bible or whatever you'll be reading from, that would be advisable. Duo or dose, two, God draws distinction between things, often between two things. Think of it like Jew and Gentile or light and darkness, male and female, baptized or not, slave or free, etc. The gospel binds all of God's people together. However, a distinction remains between sheep and goats or between those that celebrate God's righteous rule and those that do not. It's really a theme from Genesis to Revelation. It's never more seen than in the book of Revelation. This distinction between the two is not always easy to see, though, through church history, or more readily in the time we live right now. Sometimes we don't know. Here in Revelation 11, the seventh trumpet will blast, and what we will see is two. We'll see two witnesses testifying that there are two groups in verses 1 to 6. We'll see that God's faithful churches experience trials at the hands of the unconverted and at the hands of their leader, here referred to, and 35 more times in Revelation referred to simply as the beast in verses 7 through 14. And thirdly, we will see dual destinies with the people of God celebrating his reign and the people of the beast raging into eternity in verses 15 through 19. Let's hear the word of the Lord now. Revelation chapter 11 in its entirety. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically or spiritually is called Sodom and called Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Verse 10, And those who dwell on the earth, those earth dwellers, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath 
of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven, to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And without much said about that woe, we hear the seventh trumpet. Listen to verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple, remember verse 1, the temple of God, God's temple or God's sanctuary in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. Again, we'll see today two witnesses testifying to two groups of people. We'll see that God's faithful church has experienced trials at the hands of the unconverted, and we'll see dual destinies with the people of God celebrating God's righteous rule into eternity and the people of the beast raging into eternity at what they perceive as God's unjust yet righteous rule. First, in the six verses of the beginning of the chapter, let's consider these two witnesses testifying that there are two groups. God is a distinguishing God. Even if we can't always make definitive distinctions, God can. He sees deep into your inner part. John continues the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. It's all about the church witnessing. We saw in chapter 10 about how John had to eat a bittersweet scroll, a scroll with messaging that was both bitter and sweet. It had both judgment and salvation communicated in it. It was reminiscent of the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 11 is about the prophetic witness going forward in power in spite of the trials that the witnessing church faces. John, in verse 1, was giving a measuring rod like a staff. This reed was used to make precise measurements in the ancient world. But it's hard for us not to think of the shepherd's psalm, isn't it? You probably know it. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. It's hard not to think about it as John caught this vision on the Lord's day in the prison island of Patmos. John is told a series of cyclical visions with spiritual applications for a spiritual people. John is told to measure the worshipers. Get this, to measure the worshipers, to make account of the worshipers. He knows the very numbers of hairs on your head, the number of hair on your head. He knows how many of you there are. He knows whose his are and whose his are not. God is precise and distinguishing. As John is told of the precision of God through a series of visions that 
are not so much sequential as they are cyclical, telling the same history of the church over and over again from different vantage points and with different levels of depth in different spots, often articulated with the numbers 1 through 7, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. And with the seals and now with the trumpets, we have an interlude or an extended period of discussion between the 6th and the 7th seals or the 6th and the 7th trumpets. John is told to measure the worshipers in the temple, but not to account for the court outside the temple. John wasn't to give account to that, we see. To leave that out, it says. It says the nations will trample the holy city for a time. It says 42 months, which is three and a half years. It's like the 1,260 days if you take 30 days per month. Pulling from Daniel, this signifies a time that is cut short. We do not make it to the seven complete years of Sabbath, but only halfway. The Lord cuts short the time of trial. You need to understand that though the gospel is to be preached to every nation, that's our calling in this age of the church. Not everyone in every nation will repent. Operation World estimates that 8% of the over 7 billion people in the world today, 8%, I think I did the math, it's, it's 500, 600 million people, profess the evangelical faith. They profess to be born again. We don't know their hearts, but if we just take them at their word... That means 92% do not. Now, I want to see as many people as will come to come to the Lord. And we know that we must lift up the name of the Lord in order for this to happen. But we should not be disillusioned or caught off guard by the fact that we are a witnessing and vocal minority. This has been throughout the history of the church. And we're going to get into that some today as we walk through this text together in our short time together. We do not make it to this complete seventh year, but only half. And though the gospel will go forward in every, to every nation, not every person in every nation will repent, sadly. And our work in the nations, if you want to take 8%, maybe you want to take something to the consideration of about a tenth part or a tithe, if that math holds it all, we're, uh, we're salt in the earth. We're to, to share the gospel message with people. And it's gritty, and it's grimy, and it's grueling, and it requires generosity. And frankly, it's work. Regardless of your career, your vocation, what you do with your time, your relative health, as believers with a pulse, your job is to share the gospel that God might do the work through the message of the gospel to change the hearts of the 90%, that they might be saved. You are not to be overly concerned with the results. You're called to share the gospel and leave the results to the Lord. I think too often we are so caught up in our own sense of esteem and our own sense of correction and being correct that we are scared to share the gospel because we're worried about the results. The fact of the matter is, an overemphasis on the results will cause you to underemphasize the plain sharing of the gospel. I want to call you today to share the gospel with people and leave the results to the Lord. Tell them the, the story, the old story of the gospel, of what Christ has done for you. Tell them how you would be hopelessly lost without the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Tell them what it means to you and see what happens. I think too often 
we try to put our part as God's part and God's part as our part. We tell, He changes. We don't change the people and we don't control the results. In fact, it seems by averages that we're very often in the minority and, and often, often facing trials. And the text seems to bear that out today. It's a bit of a back and forth in church history with some, with some victories, but also with some tough losses along the way. And this text seems to bear uh, that out. Matthew chapter 24 says that this gospel will go to all nations and then the end will come. Now, I did not ask for this passage to be put up on the screen today, so I'm not asking them now in this 11th hour to pull it up, but just listen to the words of Matthew 24 as I share a little bit about the apocalyptic section of that gospel. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, we're about this enduring work to the end. And the love of many has grown cold. Read Revelation 2, 1-7 with regard to the church at Ephesus. In fact, only two of the seven churches talked about in Revelation 2 and 3 seem to be faithful on the right track churches. We are told, Acts chapter 20, by the Apostle Paul, that there will be wolves rise up from among us as if to deceive the elect if they could. We are told that within the professing church, those, there will be many that defect and actually wind up persecuting the church in the name of the state. This is biblical. Matthew 24 goes on to say this, it says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. Key word there, testimony. Root word in Greek, martyr. Martyros, testimony or a witness. As a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel will go forward. In Matthew 24, verse 24, it says, For false Christs, false Christs, antichrists, plural, False Christs and false prophets will arrive and will arise and perform signs, great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if it were possible, even the elect. Look at you guys getting that on the screen after all. The audio people will not catch that, but you guys are good. Got that on the screen after all. If even possible, the elect notice this here. Is it possible for the false Christs to permanently lead astray the elect? Answer, based on this verse, no. The elect will not be led astray by false Christ. That is a, a wonderful assurance as you face trials in this present age. What Galatians calls a present evil age. Now back to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. Let us consider then, elect of God... If it's not possible for you to be permanently led astray, and if God has measured you out and welcomed you into the inner place to worship, if He's redeemed your soul, to put it in Bible language, if He's put His Spirit in you not to go away as the prophets predicted, if the new covenant in Christ's blood made a way for the Spirit to come inside you, for God to be in us, for Him to tabernacle with us, for us to be the temple of God, if He made a way for that, then we are indeed preciously, preciously promise the endurance of such faith. 
God has measured you out. God's got you. It's not you having yourself. And His rod and His staff comforts you, even as it distinguishes in ways that we cannot. So who are these two witnessing olive tree lampstands? This olive tree or oil is thinking back to the Old Testament and the prophets where the Spirit sourced the lamp. The witness sources the lamp stand. The light itself is not the stand. The church exists to hold up the light or to hold up Christ, not ourselves. We preach not ourselves, but Christ crucified. And the Bible says, if he be lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. Again, not the results our concern, but the proclamation, the witnessing, the testifying our concern during this life and during this age. Remember Revelation 1.20. Keep your finger in Revelation 11 and just briefly hear, 10 chapters earlier, the last verse, the last part of the last verse of Revelation 1. This is Jesus is laying the framework for the entire book. And these are, these are words attributed to Jesus, given to John the Apostle, as he's caught up in the Lord's Day. And he ends, John, John 1 is ended with, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw on my right hand, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are of the seven churches. So what are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches. And we should take our cues from Revelation when possible. The seven lampstands are of the seven churches. Philadelphia and Smyrna are mentioned as faithful witnessing churches through their trials in Revelation chapter 2 and then chapter 3, Smyrna and then Philadelphia. So these two lampstands are two faithful churches. They are the faithful church, and when the dead body is mentioned in verses 8 and 9, twice it's mentioned grammatically singular, as if their dead body were referring to a corporate body, the church, the body of Christ throughout the church age. In one form or another, it's us. Why would the original audience, the churches in Revelation, suddenly vanish and fall out of view in order to return to a pre-Romans 10.4, pre-Christ is the end of the law for righteousness? Why would it return to an earlier time in redemptive history to describe a third rebuilding of the temple? Or a rebuilding of the temple for the second time. Understand that the arc of the Bible's story goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. In the history of redemption or redemptive history, as the church moves forward toward its final consummation in Christ's kingdom, we are not looking back and returning to, the, to rebuild the temple as the Jews did when they returned from the exile in Babylon. In fact, John is pillaging temple history to point to the true and better temple where God dwells by His indwelling Spirit with His people where our fellowship will be unfettered, always abetted forevermore. Remember in the New Covenant, the Spirit comes for good and stays in the redeemed of the Lord, in the elect, that it's impossible for them to be drugged away permanently by the Antichrist, as we read in Matthew 24. Remember in the New Covenant that the Spirit comes for good and stays in the elect redeemed of the Lord, and so that's why we say so. Redeemed, be assured of this today, as one said, God never loves you more and never loves you less than He does right now. His love for you is steadfast, unlike your love for one another, unlike even your love for your spouse or, on this day, your mother. 
His love doesn't ebb and flow and go up and down. He loves you perfectly for all time. You are His. You're redeemed. And so when we worship, we say so. We're, we're standing to be counted. We're giving an account. We're saved by Christ's sacrifice. But flip back to Revelation 11 and look at verse 3. In our messaging, we understand, like the prophets have always understood, that we are to be clothed in mourning or clothed in sackcloth. This message is not only sweet for us, it's bitter for the rebels of God. The judgment on the rebels of God is as secure as the sun rises and sets. Their judgment is sure. And we are not to take a haughty attitude as if we did something to merit the unmeritable favor of God in our lives. We are not to take a haughty attitude toward their judgment. Those bad people, they're going to get judged. That's not the message we bring. We bring this message as gentle, humble servants and say, Whosoever would come, we may come. This gospel's for you. It's a free gift of eternal life. And as long as you've got a pulse, you can receive it. Repent of your sin and believe in Christ. And it comes with a warning. If you do not receive the gospel, you will face the white-hot wrath of God for eternity. You will be banished to the abyss with the beast that you loved instead of loving and worshiping the Savior. That's the distinguishing message that we preach, even if we cannot always distinguish sheep from goats ourselves. In fact, we don't know. We do our best to fence the Lord's table. We do our best to preach the gospel to people coming into the church. They have to have a credible profession of faith, what we believe is a credible profession of faith when we interview them. When we go to members' meetings, we say, this person has explained the gospel. They seem to be able to guard and proclaim the gospel. They seem to have a gospel testimony of faith where they've received it in their heart. And we come to members' meetings and we present them to you for membership. But the bottom line is, on the authority of Acts 20 and other verses like it, 2 Timothy, Hebrews, we find that there's going to be uh, uh, wolves amongst the sheep. And, and we are not to accept that. We have to, we have to discipline that when folks rise up among us and essentially deny the gospel and live completely out of step with the gospel and turn out to be wolves. We, we have to deal with that, but we, we must move past a mature past, me included, being surprised when that happens. Doesn't the Bible predictively prophesy that's going to take place in the churches? In fact, I think that's what's at bottom with this in this messaging is that the enemies from without are much more easily identified than the enemies from within. When the enemies come from within, it's particularly disillusioning if you don't expect it. This is why the Apostle Paul, in his last message to the elders at Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he says, don't be surprised, I'm paraphrasing, but go read it this afternoon. Acts 20, and it's the whole last half of the chapter where he says, the Lord says it's more blessed to give than to receive. He says in the last half of the chapter, he says, don't be surprised as you're preaching the full counsel of the Word of God to people, as you're innocent of their blood, as you're watching over one another and over the whole flock, in your geography, do not be surprised, Ephesian elders, when wolves savage the sheep, when they grow up and try to get people to follow after themselves, and they say terrible things, ungospel things about our Lord. Don't be surprised. We mustn't be surprised any longer. Perilous times have come. Perilous times will be. Our task is the same. Revelation 11 
3 ends with clothed in sackcloth. And verse 4 says these are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And it speaks of how if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. And, and truly, in verse 5, truly, we see here that the Lord does powerful, miraculous things in and around the giving of the prophetic message and in and around the propagation, the preaching of the gospel. But we shouldn't lose the undertone of Jeremiah here. When the prophets preach the word, when the people, when the saints deliver the word, it's described in Jeremiah as like fire coming out of their mouth. And so when someone says, you know, the preacher preached fire today, there's a metaphor there that's clearly rooted in the lineage of the prophets, the heritage of the prophets. There is a, a powerful, consuming message. It's, it's not that the preacher saves people or that your witnessing to people saves people in and of yourself. It's that the message has power. God does miraculous things through the message being shared, through the preaching and teaching of the gospel to a new generation of people. We must tell it to ourselves, to be sure, for encouragement, but to the watching world so that they might be saved. We must preach it again and again in the church house because it is a mixed multitude. It is possible that a goat would become a sheep by God's wonderful saving work through the preaching of the gospel, even if they once professed Christ and weren't actually sincere about it. I'm not trying to get sincere believers to question their salvation. That's not why I'm preaching this. If your conscience is tender, this message is not for you. But if you come to the Lord's house hard-hearted, rock-headed, week after week after week, and you got this whole church thing by the horns, and one day the Lord humbles your heart and breaks you, and you receive the gospel, it may be possible that you were, as the Bible says, a part of what was visible, but not actually a part of the true church. And I'll tell you something. Here's something that you will know. Here's how, one of the ways that you'll know when the Lord's calling you in. is He crushes your pride. I'll never forget when I was godly converted. Because I didn't do it. He did it to me. Worship made no sense to me when I was saving myself. It made no sense to me because I had something to do with it. You know, right, godly converted? What's a hallmark of the godly converted? Is It's pride crushing, isn't it? It just, it just throttles your pride because you can't do it. We're humbled at the foot of the cross. We don't bring anything to it. Revelation 11 is another opportunity. After another opportunity. After another opportunity. After another opportunity. For those of you that have been around the visible church for years, if not decades, to come to saving faith. It's an opportunity. I don't have this thing by the horns, but I can tell you this much. I know the Lord has saved my cold, dead heart and turned me toward true worship. And I don't know what better message could ever be shared with you than that. Just trust Him. Just trust Him. This tussle, it goes on the church mourns as it preaches to some who won't heed the call to repent and believe the gospel but it rejoices as some do and i'm trusting that some will today what we've seen here first six verses 
is two witnesses testifying to just two groups of people. And secondly, we're going to see God's faithful churches experiencing trials at the hands of the unconverted and at the hands of their leader, who is referred to here for the first of 36 times as the beast. Look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, martyr, testimony, martyros, remember that word from Matthew 24, when they have finished their testimony, which again I presume to be the churches throughout the age because I don't think the testifying is finished in one generation, then the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, beast is picking up from apocalyptic literature from the Old Testament to be sure, the beast that rises from the abyss, from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Now before we read any more, I just want your eyes to glance over. On my, in my Bible, I can get to Revelation 13, 7 without actually turning the page. You may have to turn one page. And it says here, actually, I'll read verses 5 through 8, but 7 is what I'm wanting to grab. Revelation 13. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Isn't that it? Prideful words. The antithesis of a humble heart. Prideful words. And it was allowed to exercise the beast was authority for 42 months. So a powerful beast. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming, not fearing His name as as should be done, but blaspheming His holy name and His dwelling, therefore those who He dwells with, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Verse 7, also it was allowed, the beast was, to make war on the saints and conquer them. Notice here that the beast is making war not on two witnesses singularly, or even dually for that matter, since it's singular when they die in Revelation 11, 8, and 9, but all of the saints collectively and to conquer them. And it says in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. So just as we're out there trying to get to the nations, the enemy is at work in the nations. In verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Just as we're calling people to worship the one true God, They're being wooed to worship the beast. And we may say something about what that looks like as we come into the end of this this chapter today. And it says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Look at the totality of human history and the, the finality of God's divine decree in redemption history. Now, jump back to Revelation chapter 11, Verse 7 and 8 and following, that's, this, is our, this is the root of our second point here. God's faithful church is experiencing trials at the hands of the unconverted, being led by their leader, the beast. Look at verse 7. When they finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and makes war on them. Makes war just like spiritual war mentioned in Revelation 13 there. It's a spiritual war rises and conquers them and kills them. And truly, physical happens too. Deaths, martyrs have happened throughout the age of the church. They're happening today. Look at Asia. Look at the church in Africa. They're happening today. Just because we haven't yet suffered to the point of the shedding of blood here necessarily doesn't mean we won't. It doesn't mean that they aren't. We need to wake up from our malaise of thinking that gospel proclamation is free and accepted all over over the world because it's not. And we're not promised it will be, and yet we're called to share it. It says here in verse 8, Revelation eleven eight, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified for three and a half days. Some of the peoples and tribes and languages and, languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. 
and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry. And it'll be like Christmas in July. They'll exchange presents over the death of the martyrs. They'll celebrate the death of the martyrs because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The earth dwellers are tormented by the effectual preaching of the two prophets, or as I've been arguing, the church. Now, it is possible, see where I left off here, at the end of verse 10, put your finger there, it is possible that there's a dual meaning here. Some have drawn the connection rightly to Joshua, the priestly figure, and Zerubbabel, the princely figure, from Zechariah 4. And if time would permit, we would read it, but I'm not going to read it right now, H. I thought about it, but you might just go read Zechariah 4, 2 to 14 this afternoon and draw those connections with the language in view here in Revelation 11. Perhaps the two is hearkening back to the, the, what we now understand is the threefold offices of our Lord, prophet, priest, and king. We have a prophetic message, and these two witnesses are bringing priestly and kingly elements to the eventual rule and reign of Christ. Maybe there's something there. It's also possible, and some have pointed out, this could be Moses and Elijah. Remember, they were present on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some have posited this is Enoch and Elijah, because in the Old Testament, remember, they're the ones that were caught up and didn't actually taste physical death. Some have posited contemporary figures and gone through church history to try to piece together what the two witnesses might mean. With that in the hopper, I'm simply saying to you that I think the more consistent reading here is to say that the church always has its witnesses and they're always hated by the beast and we're always under attack. And perhaps there will be an intensification before the end comes. But no matter, the intensification has come and gone throughout the age of the church. Look at Diocletian. Look at the ten waves of persecution in the Roman Empire. Look at the medieval times. Look at the rise of the Muslims. Look at the papacy. Look at the Reformation. Look at the Enlightenment. Look at the French Revolution. Look all the way through church history. Look in the 20th century. Look at Mao. Look at Pol Pot. Look at China. Khrushchev. Saudi Arabia. Open your eyes today to the voice of the martyrs and subscribe to it. It's going on right now. And we somehow think of ourselves as exempted because we have had a Christian influence seemingly more so than other countries through the 20th century. But we cannot continue denying the clear precepts of the Word of God and killing our unborn children and expect God to bless us. We are heading down a path of destruction and the gospel must be proclaimed even if some from our midst say it shouldn't be. If some from our midst join the worship of the beast and pile on us as if we don't know what we're talking about. Justice for the least of these. Justice for people regardless of skin color. Justice for people that cannot take care of themselves. Justice for the poor. We preach justice because Jesus taught us to. And we expect suffering because He told us to. You remember when He said, they hated me? And what did He say? They'll hate you too.
Don't be surprised. God distinguishes. And He tells us in this time where sometimes we can't distinguish until after the fact. He tells us to expect heartbreak. You can be disappointed, but don't be surprised. This is the nature of this tussle, of this spiritual war that sometimes becomes physical, but it's always there lurking spiritually underneath the waterline. As ended off in verse 10, the earth dwellers were having a party because the martyrs, because of the death of the martyrs. They didn't like the restraint that was provided by the presence of the saints on the earth, and, and they're joining the beast and making war of the saints, whether they're cognitive of it or not, realizing it or not. And the dead bodies of Christians throughout the world are not always given proper burials, we know. And there's these celebrations when that restraining witness of the church is removed in certain places, even though it, it just seals the destruction of the enemies of God. Revelation 11:8. it's noteworthy before we move on to verse 11. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. That symbolically, that is panumatikos. It's a Greek adverb, spiritually. Panuma, spiritual. Spiritually or symbolically. So what we have here from the Greek text is, is a consistent interpretive lens to understand language in apocalyptic literature symbolically. That's not denying the narrative passages of Scripture. It's not denying a historical Adam. It's not denying the validity of the gospel. It's not denying miracles and signs. It's not denying the virgin birth. It's not denying the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all the dead. It's not denying any of that to say, oh, symbolic. Because spiritual symbolic is what spiritual Sodom and spiritual spiritual Egypt are being talked about here and the spiritual city. So what do we make of this? Let's, Let's carefully look at it. I told you we would toward the end of this sermon. It says, The dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom. Symbolic Sodom. Remember how how Sodom was the rebellious city that maligned God's witnesses before they were destroyed? You remember that? Or how about Egypt? How about symbolic Egypt? has something in common with the Jerusalem that crucified the Christ. Do you remember symbolic Egypt? Egypt enslaved God's people, leaving them with crippling economic sanctions for centuries before he parted the Red Sea, delivering his people and drowning those that would not celebrate his rule and reign. Pharaoh, like some in the visible church, would give slight glory to God to get out of consequences, but it was only skin deep. You remember he would reverse. There's no consistency to it. The Bible says that from among us, wolves will emerge savaging the sheep. We won't always know until it happens, but as I've said, we ought not be surprised. Symbolic Sodom in Egypt, ironically, has something in common with Jerusalem, where the Lord was crucified, because there the ultimate injustice occurred, that ultimate act of rebellion. The suffering Savior was killed by the beast in order to secure the final fate of two peoples, the sheep and the goats. It's through the preaching of this prophetic word, witnessing to it, that God's divine decree unfolds. So be faithful by way of application. Hear me, sheep. Be faithful. Understand that God's people don't always get to save face. We don't get to keep our dignity. We won't always apparently win the argument. From the Roman catacombs to the Chinese underground. The church has, to be, has appeared to be killed 
and may appear to be killed again. But don't believe the news reporting. It's not dead. For us, it is not death to die. And even a church in the catacombs or on the run is not an impotent church. Don't despise small things, this text says, picking up on Zechariah 2. Imagine the horror after three days dead, a short time, when the church comes back to life. This is a rapture, but it's not secret, as William Hendrickson said. Listen to Revelation 11, 11 through 14 now. It says, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God. Sounds like Genesis 2, doesn't it? A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Perhaps not salvific in that moment, maybe in a Pharaoh-like sense they did. In verse 14, the second woe has passed. Even though this isn't the emphasis, the third woe is soon to come. He's getting to the seventh trumpet in verse 15. But just before we do, just just a, a, a word. This horror for the enemies of God at the prospect of the resurrection of the dead is real. The enemies of God will not gloat. They will not gloat into eternity. I appeal to you as saints, I appeal to you to not let yourself be caught up in the news cycle of this world. I appeal to you, saints, to stay on message and keep delivering this gospel. That's the hope of the world. And I appeal to you, sinners in this mixed multitude, trust in the Lord. Receive the gospel while you still have time. This is not some silly little thing you stumbled onto. You will face the seventh trumpet. The second coming of the Lord is fixed. As I've said, as sure as the sun rises and sets, as sure as Jesus came, will He come again. And listen now to our third and final point, verses 15 through 19. God's people celebrate His reign while the people of the beast rage into eternity. Dual destinies. Two destinies. Listen to verses 15 to 19 in conclusion. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of our world has come, and the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. Forever reign. Two kingdoms to one. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces. And look, what did they do? They didn't worship the beast. They worshiped God. Remember in, in verse 1, being marked off as worshipers. The people were marked off. And it says here, that in verse 17, saying, We thank, give thanks to God, like Eucharist, like, like communion. We thank you, God, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. And then a word about the raging nations, thinking of Psalm 2, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. I almost say anyway. In spite of it, it comes anyway. Nothing could be done to thwart the plan of God when the time is ripe. And the time for the dead to be judged has come. And also for the rewarding of your servants, who are the prophets and saints. Remember all of us. Again, the context of this chapter as worshiping witnesses that, that face this work in trial. It says, those who fear your name. Aren't, isn't it great to have elders that lead us in fearing the name of the Lord, in thanking the Lord, in recognizing His power, in pursuing that aim of 
viewing that one true face of getting to the finish line of enduring in the faith. Those who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. So the Lord is righteous in His judgment as He brings salvation. And finally, finally, verse 19. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was open, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple. And, and kind of a reminiscent flashback, I think there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, this phenomenon, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So God's people celebrate His reign while the people of the beast rage into eternity. So that breath of life from Genesis that God breathed into pre-rebellious mankind is now a breath of life from Revelation that God will breathe into post-rebellious mankind. The redeemed of the Lord will rise again into a new and eternal Eden. So let's get our citizenships in order. This is about heaven and hell. It's about dual destinies. His reign will be eternal, and good elders will lead the way in humble posture, even bowing at times, prostrate before the Lord in worship. Catholics don't get it all wrong when you bow. There's something to it. Do you get on your knees in the mornings or in your prayer closet? Do you get down before the Lord and bow down and pray? It's not that you can't be prideful when you're bowed, and it's not that you can't be humble when you're standing. I'm simply saying there's something that is a good reminder for us as far as we are able to get on our knees and pray to the Lord. You know, Daniel did. I'm thankful and prayerful for elders in the next generation that will lead us in giving thanks and bowing humbly before the Lord in, in how to worship our God according to the Scriptures. There are examples in the Old Testament in Korah's rebellion with Uzzah. There are examples in the Old Testament where God's people didn't worship rightly and they were punished for it. We need elders that seek the Lord for how He wants to be worshipped, who fear His name, and who look forward to God's final triumph, and who lead us in living with the uncertainty, with the ambiguity of who's, who's actually going to stay till the end. We are keeping one another in the faith, and yet we cannot be surprised when wolves arise amongst the sheep. And again, I don't say that to have sincere believers question their salvation. I say it so that sincere believers are not caught off guard and unduly tormented when the trial comes, because very often it comes from within. God's people, 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians, are referred to as the temple. The ark of His covenant, God's temple sanctuary, is open. Our fellowship will be forevermore. Consummation is a predicted reality we will see come into fuller flower at the imagery of Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of this fine book. Creation, fall, redemption finally gives way to consummation of the kingdom. And creation, fall, redemption, consummation is a wonderful way to think of the storyline of the Bible. But here's another fourfold way of thinking about something from the Bible, another motif for the gospel. It's God, man, Christ in response. Simply put, God made man. Man, every one of us rebelled. Christ saves man. What will be your response? God made you. You rebelled. Christ offers to save you. What will be your response? There's still time. The beast does not have to have his way with you. The Ark of the Covenant, the foreshadowing of the Holy of Holies, will be available to God's people in open table fellowship with God forevermore. We will not return to the blood of bulls and goats when the blood of our Lord has provided a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Amen? 
Hebrews rightly tells the story. There's the church of the Old and New Covenant, redeemed people, rising again where God dwells, and to the abject horror of the enemies of God, we rise again after three and a half days. So in application and conclusion, I'll just give you six things. Be precise with the Word. Be precise. Accept this holy war, as Bunyan wrote, the spiritual war that's going on around us. Accept it. Track church history as God's history. Study it and know it. You'll know where we're going better by knowing where we come from. Worship. Lift high the name of Jesus every Sunday and the Tuesday in between. But don't miss Sunday. Come out here and let elders lead you as the elders will lead you in the end forevermore. They're going to be falling down and worshiping. There's, there's exemplary, there's leadership, example needed. Come, worship. Lift high the name of Jesus. Mourn as you message and rejoice as you message. Wear sackcloth and smile. Elders, feed you the word here. Spiritual things matter. Be on mission out there. Tell people this gospel regardless of the results. And finally, 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 be willing to welcome people into the church that are coming from hell into sure and certain life. Welcome people that have maybe shown signs but not committed. Welcome people that have made light of spiritual things but God's redeemed them. Hold your arms open, always remembering that but for the grace of God, you wouldn't be in this thing either. Let's pray.